And you have your Bibles open there to James chapter 5, verse 12, and Matthew chapter 5 as well. I want to read a, an opening paragraph. You probably get these blogs that come to your email. And uh, there's one uh, from Ravi Zacharias uh, that comes. I think the title is Slice of Infinity. It comes every day to your email. And, and I read this one this week. His opening paragraph. Over coffee at Starbucks, my friend shared the story of his departure from his Christian faith. He did not leave his faith over a whim or because of some intellectual crisis. He left because his work as a journalist led him into Christian circles where he met some of the most influential Christian leaders and teachers. He left his Christian faith because as he traveled in these circles, he saw very little evidence of true Christian transformation of character, values, and lifestyle. Instead, what he witnessed was a group of men and women who resembled the world more than they did Jesus. The distance between their word and their deed caused him to doubt the transformative power of the gospel. If Christianity made such little difference in the lives of these Christian leaders, what difference could it make in his own life? Everyone here that has reached the age of discernment, and of course it's not sure where that age is, Uh, But let's say it's 13 or 15 or 18. I know some folks are struggling to reach that age at older than 18. But everyone who has reached that age has had wrestled with this opening paragraph, and that is a conflict with integrity. Maybe you've wrestled with it in a way that hasn't caused you to walk away from your beliefs, but, but you've Because you're discerning, you've been stung and you've been disillusioned in some way because someone you were so close to, someone that meant so much to you, you discovered had holes in their character. You you discovered they had problems with personal integrity. You began to witness that what they said was different than actually what they did. And I intentionally use this phrase, the age of discernment, because when you reach that age, the person that you thought so much of, the person you were so close to, the person you discovered had holes in the character, the person that you discovered couldn't hold their integrity together, the person who said one thing and did another, that person is you. When you eat, when you reach the age of discernment, what you discover is that I'm coming face to face with that person every morning because I see that person in the mirror every morning. When you reach the age of discernment, it doesn't mean that you suddenly become discerning about other people's hypocrisy, which certainly can happen. But the hypocrisy that you're going to know the greatest, the biggest hypocrite, the person who's having the toughest time holding his or her life together is always going to be you. You may see and be able to easily identify that in someone else, but that's all you know about that. You know a lot more about yours. 
So often when you talk to people outside of the church, this is one of their main and justifiable complaints. Oh, the churchgoers or that churchgoer. You know, somehow they see that person and they say, well, you know, they say something in here, but then I see him out on the weekend or I see him at the workplace and it comes out or it looks a lot differently. And when I run into those people, as I do, I first say that I know what you're saying is true. And I want to confess that I'm part of the problem. But I want to follow up with that statement and say, you know, those churchgoers, when they come together on Sunday morning, we can be thankful they're not coming together to worship each other. We can be thankful that they've come together not to worship the leader. They've come together. They've all limped in together. No one's striding in this morning saying, Paul, if there's just a way you could project my thought life up on the screen this past week, it would be such a blessing to everyone here. No one's saying that. You may be trying to hide it. You may be trying to put some cloth over it so people don't see the holes quite so easily. But we understand we're stumbling in. And we're desperately looking for, as the song said, there's a desperation. We've got to find somebody else, somebody outside of us. And, of course, we know that person to be Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 5, in Jesus there is no darkness at all. Hebrews 5, 9, Jesus is perfect. And because of his perfection, he is the source of eternal salvation. And so we come and we gladly worship Jesus because what happened is he took our hypocrisy and he took it upon himself on the cross and a great exchange took place. He gave us his perfection. He took all of our sin and said, I understand that I'm going to pay that down for you. And in the exchange, just by faith, just by freely surrendering, he's going to give you his character that has no holes in it. Second Corinthians 521, the Apostle Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Christ, we might be the righteousness, we might be the perfection of God. Paul says it a different way, Philippians 3, 9. I, lo- I no longer count on my own righteousness. Such a key Bible phrase. I, I'm here, and you know what? I used to be counting on my own righteousness, but it, I'm not counting on that anymore. I'm counting on another righteousness. I no longer count on my own righteousness through doing what's right. No, no. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. You see, the Bible is is crystal clear about something that everyone here who is discerning should know just intuitively. The Bible is crystal clear about something that when you see it, you should say, "I I know that. I just know that intuitively. And that is that you cannot count on your own righteousness. You're, you're never going to be good enough. 
I mean, I don't see it or I don't see a lot of it, but you know. You know the big holes in your character. You know the big holes in your thinking. And so we desperately come here seeking some other righteousness. And I love how Martin Luther says it so descriptively. He says, we need an alien righteousness. Don't you love that phrase? An alien. We need something outside of this world to come visit our planet because there's no righteousness on this planet that I can access. So I come saying, it's like I need an alien. I need something to be revealed from outside of the world that can help me in my current condition, that can help the world in the current condition. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that an alien righteousness has been revealed. And unbelievably, Jesus Christ's perfection, his perfectly intact character is freely transferred to us by faith. Okay, now I got one amen on that. I'm going to get another one. Thank you for that. And I'm going to say it again, and then you're all going to be able to say amen. So get ready. Sort of gear yourself up if you're one of those people who likes to sit on your hands. An alien righteousness has been revealed. And what has happened is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come down and seen that you cannot possibly be righteous enough. And by His grace and mercy, freely, He has dumped it on you and he has taken all of your holes and he has put it on himself and now you can stand boldly in front of God and say here I am and he can say I've been waiting for you please come in amen amen, amen. that's the gospel that's that's the good news that's why a bunch of hypocrites have come into this room today they've all limped in you've all limped in I've limped in and I've limped in because I've been looking around saying, how could I do it? And I'm saying, no, 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 I've got to get reoriented. It's not me. It's Christ alone. And so we need to just stop for a moment and ask, what did you come here looking for this morning? Did you come really having this thought in your mind? Preacher, I just need some help. I need to somehow get control of some of these things in my life. I need to shape up because I really want to get into heaven. And if that's what you came wanting or that's what you came thinking, you're really trying to fulfill self-righteousness. Or did you come saying, Preacher, I need, it's like I need an alien. I'm so terrible in the way I think. And my words don't match up with my deeds. And I've got these massive holes that I spend most of my life trying to cover up. And it's like I just need somebody from outside of the world to come in and give me some help. And then if you have, you've come to the right place. Because we have the answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here, and many of you are, 
and you've given up on self-righteousness and you've received this alien righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, then the Apostle Paul writes these words in Ephesians 4. Since you have heard about Jesus and you have learned the truth that comes from him, in other words, since you have surrendered to Christ, since you have put your faith in Christ, now this is what you need to do. Put off or throw off your old sinful self and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and hypocrisy. Indeed, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like you were created to be like God. Holy and righteous. In other words, now that you know the truth about Jesus and you know the truth about yourself, it's time, once that's in place, it's time for you to get to work. You understand that? If you don't know Jesus Christ and you say, it's time for me to get to work, what's going to happen? Self-righteousness. But once you know Jesus and you say it's a free gift, then he's saying, yes, now, now that you know that, now it's time for you to get to work. It's time for you to throw off your old clothing. It's time to put on something new. It's, it's, like, it's like the Apostle Paul steps in and says, you know what, we've got to get rid of this wardrobe. Terrible wardrobe. Way out of style. My guess is you probably know someone who's like this. You could actually go into their wardrobe and say, oh, gosh. I mean, did you ever get out of the 80s? Let's kind of move all this. There's nothing here worth keeping, sir or ma'am, but I'm just going to plead the fifth. And that's what Paul's doing. And that's what James is doing. They're coming in. And they're assuming you know the gospel, and they're looking at your closet and said, you know, well, we've got to get rid of this wardrobe. And you've got to work at it. This is where you come in, and you've got to throw off some things, and you've got to put on some new things. And so when we've walked through these chapters, these first five chapters of James, we've seen him just make the connections to several different things, wealth, temptation, conflict, favoritism, anger, patience, how you use your tongue or don't use your tongue. And today we come to the issue of integrity or character or throwing off hypocrisy. So verse 12, chapter 5, is really just a very simple statement. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But simply let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. One commentator said this, To say yes and mean it, to say no and equally mean it is a matter of integrity. We should be people without internal division, free of double-mindedness. And listen to how he says this, We should live as whole people before God and man. And I'm wondering how many truly whole people we have here. Or how how many of us are fractured 
We're just divided and we're just trying to hold our shattered glass together, hoping nobody really notices. How many people here are really free because they live in the truth instead of living a double-minded life or a divided life? Are you a whole person? One of the commonly asked questions when you read uh, chapter 5 in James or chapter 5 in Matthew is, okay, what what is it that Jesus and, and James are actually saying here? I mean, it just sounds like it's saying you just don't take an oath. You never swear by anything. And, of course, there are people in church history who have said that. So if you were an Amish person or if you were a Quaker or you were a Mennonite and you were you came before a, a court of law and you were asked to put your hand on the Bible and swear by it, you just wouldn't do it. And you wouldn't do it because you'd say, I'm referencing my faith here, so I don't take those kinds of oaths. And I would say that I don't think that's probably the best way to read this passage, although it seems plain. And the reason I would draw that conclusion is that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6.13, God commands that we take an oath in his name. It says this, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Acts chapter 2.29, Peter's sermon. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the David, that patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that God would place one of his descendants on his throne. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And you might remember when Jesus is in front of Herod and Pontius Pilate, the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And, of course, Jesus said, I am. He didn't say, you know, I don't take oaths, so I need to let's back up. And so I think that you can see just from the context of the whole Bible that it's seems reasonable that James and John are saying something different than just simply never taking an oath or swearing by something. What they're reacting against, and you see it a little more clearly in Matthew chapter 5, is this practice of swearing or oath-taking, and you really don't have any intention of following through. Now, so what's happening in the, with the religious people that Jesus specifically is addressing is what they're saying is, well, I'm just going to swear by the city, or I'm going to swear by the throne, or I'm going to swear by heaven, or I'm going to swear by hell. And what they were doing was saying, I'm not going to swear by God, because if I swear by God, then I'm really going to own it. So I'm just going to kind of get near God to make you think that I'm going to keep my word. But then if I can't keep my word, I'll say, well, you know, it's just, I'm just swearing by heaven. I'm just swearing by, by Jerusalem. It really doesn't hold. Every elementary student knows this. You go out to the playground. You make a promise. I'm going to do such and such. You can count on me, Johnny. Cross my heart. What does it say? Hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. That always got me like, oh, gosh. Well, when you said cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, you meant it. 
That was a blood oath right there, baby, on the playground. With this exception. If you didn't follow through, what was your way out? Oh, I had my fingers crossed when I made that promise. Well, I had my legs crossed. You didn't quite see that, did you? There's some way that you're manipulating and saying, well, I intend to. But, you know, at the end, if I can't come through, then I've got my way out. And that's what's happening. That's what Jesus and James are riling against. People are coming in and they don't really intend to take the oath in the way it's meant. They're trying to get themselves out of it if need be. And so Jesus and James are just saying something very simple. As a Christian, when you say yes, you just mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. You don't need an oath. You don't need a Bible. You don't need anything else. You belong to Jesus. And your yes means yes and your no means no. If you're a Christian spouse, if you're a Christian teenager, Christian roommate, a Christian neighbor, a Christian business partner, a Christian friend, a Christian classmate, when you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. And so really it's a very simple sermon. And I just have a, in closing, a, just a few points of application, just a, a few places to examine yourself. Do you do what you say? Do you keep your promises? When you make a commitment, whether it's large or small, do you follow through? Or are you someone who regularly has to make excuses? Well, I know that's what I said, but I really wanted to, but is that, does that come out of your mouth a lot? Or when you say yes, you mean yes. Or when you say no, you mean no. If you're here and you're married, you stood before God, you stood up on a place like this, you turned to your spouse, you held hands, and you said something like this, or the pastor did, will you have this man or woman to be your wedded husband or wife? Will you live together in the holy estate of marriage? Will you love them? Will you comfort them? Will you honor them? Will you keep them in sickness and health? Will you forsake all others as long as you both shall live? And you said, looking into the eyes of your spouse, that's what I'm going to do. I will. So are you a promise keeper? I mean, you you understand the ring isn't going to hold you together. They weren't looking at each other, counting on the pastor to hold them together. They were looking at one other person saying, I'm counting on your word. And you're giving me your word that you're going to be faithful. Is that right? That's right. If you're a parent, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children 
one of the things that's most exasperating for children is inconsistent parenting. Hey, I'm going to be there. You can count on me. And then you don't come. Can we do this, Dad? Yes. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we can't do that. So dads, particularly here, Paul's asking, when you tell your kids something, is it yes means yes? Does your no mean no? Or does it mean, well, we'll see. Maybe. Depends on. For all of us here, we have to ask ourselves, do we tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Or do you exaggerate? Do you fudge? Well, it's kind of like, do you leave out key details in your explanation? Do you speak plainly or do you use words intentionally to create a fuzziness? I'll resist using a political example here. But do you just speak plainly so people understand, okay, that's what he meant. I understand that. Do you change subjects? Do you rationalize? Do you shade the truth? Do you remain silent when you shouldn't? When you turn in a test, a paper, an expense report, a tax return, and it has your name on it, is that your work? Is that the truth? Does your yes by your signature mean yes at that point? There's, you'll notice there's a heavy warning. <clears throat> and I think it's meant just to be sitting there and be heavy for those people it needs to be heavy on. Make sure your yes is yes and your no is no. Because if not, you could... Fall under condemnation. I mean, Jesus and or John or James seems to be saying that it's possible that you could live in such duplicity that even with your religion, it's a fake. You know, there were some people, or will be some people at the end, that come to Jesus and say, "Hey, we did all this stuff." And he's going to say, you know, I didn't know who you were. So it's important. It's important not to fake yourself out. I mean, you can fake me out. That really doesn't matter that much. But you can't fake out God. If you're a fake and if you're a phony, you're in a great place. Because only fakes and phonies can come to this table. No one will walk up here as a whole person outside of the grace of God. But if you're fooling yourself, this isn't a place for you. Sit, consider the heavy words of James. What am I looking for? Am I trying to just continue to go about down the path of self-righteousness, or am I willing to embrace the alien righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together.